Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. We are broadcasting live from the Commonwealth Financial Network's annual National Conference of Advisors from the Marriott in Austin, Texas. We are so pleased to say uh, we are joined now by Brad McMillan, Managing Principal and Chief Investment Officer at Commonwealth Financial Network. And Brad, uh, given the fact that you look after assets of more than $1.5 billion, I'm just wondering from your perspective, $156 billion, excuse me, I'm just wondering from your perspective whether the October route in stock markets reduced the froth enough to make it a buying opportunity at this point? Well, when you look at valuations, and I think that's really the only way we can look at it, what October told us was there was a lot of excess confidence in there. So, on the one hand, we're down at the lower level of valuations we've seen for the past five years. You can make a good case that, yeah, the froth is out of the system. I'm not convinced of that, though, because I think the underlying reality is we're starting to see interest rates move back into something closer to a normal level. And I think that ultimately that's going to apply value, imply the valuations drop to something like a normal level. So I think this is just the opening round. I don't think it's going to happen soon, but we can definitely see the timer clicking. Brad, can I just push a little bit and say normal for whom? because there's of us who are old enough to remember interest rates. Yes, I agree with you. But there are people who have come of age during a time when money was relatively inexpensive. That's a great question, Tim. And that's really kind of what we struggle with, because I have some younger folks on my team. And for them, normal is 2 3%. You know, that is what they've grown up with. When you tell with. them that it used to be 10%, 15%, and that the world didn't end. I get the look you used to give your dad, and I used to give my dad when he talked about walking uphill to school both ways. So they don't really believe it, but nonetheless, you can already see. Right now, we saw interest rates drop significantly in 2008, and they stayed in a fairly narrow range until 2011. And then the Greek crisis took rates down to a new low. Well, guess what? We've just moved back into the 08-11 range. So we're above where we were, and it's looking like it's going to stick. So... Well, I guess what I'm trying to, I want to go back to something you were saying, which is this is sort of the opening salvo, what we saw in October, that there are more declines in riskier assets to come, as, and I'm assuming as you talk, part of this is predicated on the idea that interest rates are normalizing, so some of the froth is going to have to dissipate, and the froth still is there, right? So I'm wondering, I mean, how do you advise investors or investment advisors to sort of plan with that in mind, given the fact that it might not be imminent, and given the fact that there still might be gains in some of these risk assets? Well, it's a question of what you want to optimize around, and this is something I've been writing about. Do you want to optimize around reducing your risk, or do you want to optimize around ma maximizing your returns? And that's a decision we haven't, we've been able to have both over the past decade, and now you've got, really got to start thinking about, you know, what are you trying to do? And if you're trying to protect those gains, if you're trying to minimize the downside, and by the way, as people get older, that's becoming more and more important, then you need to start taking a more defensive stance. Have more in cash. Modify your return expectations. How much more in cash? It depends on the situation. Um, it depends on how defensive you want to be. I mean, I just finished a book. I, we're handing it out at the conference here, as a matter of fact, that um, suggests that when things get bad, you really should move substantial portions of your portfolio to cash. 
So, I mean, I think cash is an underappreciated asset class, and the only reason we don't appreciate it is we've gotten used to things going up for 10 years in a row. Well, that may go on forever. I have my doubts. Am I more worried about return of capital or return on capital? It's the old Will Rogers one. Do you know people who have six months' worth of what it takes for them to live in cash? And I don't mean in a brokerage account. I mean in a bank. Yes. Are there more or less of them today than there were, let's say, in 2008? There are a lot in 2008 before the crisis or before after the, the crisis? crisis? Before the crisis. Because after the crisis, it gets a little harder. Well, I think they're probably about the same number now because we're hitting the peak of the economic cycle. You look at consumer confidence, it's actually higher than it was in 07. You know, we're at levels we've only seen at the peak of the dot-com boom. You look at, there are a lot of numbers you go out there and the highest we've ever seen except for 2000, that comes up more and more. So we're getting to the point where things are about as good as they can get, and now is the time to start thinking about being defensive. So would you say that right now greed is driving most people in the market? Absolutely. Okay, so you think that we're getting to that point where it is getting a, a little bit uh, animal spiritsy? Well, when you absolutely, when you're starting to see, um, you're starting to see the merger boom take off. That's typically what happens at the peak of a cycle. You're starting to see people continuing to feel good. That's what happens at the peak of the cycle. You're starting to see the big up and down moves. This may sound familiar after the past couple of weeks. That's typically what happens at the peak of the cycle. I don't think we're quite there yet. You know, are there still gains to be had? I think there probably are through year end. But what happens when we hit a recession, that's typically when things blow up. And that's what I'm watching for personally. Is your thought that people ought to wait in cash versus fixed income? Well, the thing about fixed income is over the past 30 years, we've had, double, we've had two sources of returns. We've had coupons, which have been higher and are now lower, and we've had capital appreciation. Going forward, if rates even just stay the same, you're just going to have coupon. If rates go up, then all you're going to have is coupon minus capital depreciation. Right, right. But if your scenario plays out that we're as good as it gets, consumer confidence is as high as it's going to get, and you're worried about the next recession, wouldn't that mean that investors will go to safety, and that means they're going to go and look to buy U.S. Treasuries, they're going to look to buy bonds, and as a result, the price of those bonds is going to go up? And historically, that's absolutely been true. But now we have the supply of U.S. bonds going up as the Treasury issues more and more. We have the buying power going down as China and Japan start to back off. In other words, it's no longer as clear-cut as it was. You're absolutely right based on history, but the underlying dynamics are changing, and I don't think we can rely on that. So you've got to watch your duration. You've got to manage your expectations. You can be in fixed income. You're getting paid for the risk in the shorter durations now, but going out, you're still making a pretty big bet. Is there any area that you've advised investment managers reduce entirely from their portfolio? It depends. If you look at, for example, U.S. stocks, if you look at it on a monthly basis, we drop below the 200-day moving average. You can make a case for getting out there. You would have been out. You would be back in now. So that's not always a good signal. But it is a good time to pay attention. I would be reducing risk right now. I wouldn't necessarily be taking it off the table. But I would be saying, okay, if I'm going to be reducing exposure anyway for tax reasons, now is a good time to be thinking about that. Just quickly, give you 20 seconds. Do people lie to themselves about how much risk they're able to take? People tell themselves the absolute truth, and then they change their mind when the risk actually shows up. 
Well done. Thanks very much. Thanks for showing up. Brad McMillan is the Chief Investment Officer for Commonwealth Financial Network, helping to manage more than $155 billion of customer assets based in Waltham, Massachusetts. And we appreciate you being here and hosting us at the Commonwealth Financial Network's annual National Conference of Advisors here in Austin, Texas. Coming up on Bloomberg Markets, we're going to talk about new chairman of Tesla, although Elon Musk is still going to be the chief executive. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Pim Fox, along with Lisa Abramowitz. I want to bring you some breaking news just crossing the Bloomberg terminal. The uh, probe into a Malaysian high-profile corruption probe has widened, and Lloyd Blankfein, the uh, former chief executive of Goldman Sachs, was the unidentified high-ranking Goldman Sachs executive referenced in U.S. court documents who attended a 2009 meeting that helped forge some of the ties with the Malaysian leader uh, and its new sovereign wealth fund that led to the bank uh, helping it raise $6.5 billion that has sparked investigations uh, across many nations. We will bring you more about this uh, in the hours ahead, Pim. Yes, uh, we'll be following that story. That is a Bloomberg exclusive. We are broadcasting from the Commonwealth Financial Network's annual National Conference of Advisors in Austin, Texas. Our guest is Christina Hooper, Chief Market Strategist for Invesco. Christina, thank you very much for being with us. Following the results of the midterm elections, do you believe that there is an investment thesis that infrastructure spending can drive the price of selective stocks higher? I think there's definitely an investment thesis for that. Um, Now, having said that, an infrastructure bill is far from a done deal, but I do believe that the president would like to see infrastructure spending, House Democrats would like to see infrastructure spending, and we might see enough uh, senators on the Republican side of the aisle also support it, especially if we see some kind of dip in economic growth in 2019. So there are a lot of good reasons, and in particular, if we want to think about how the U.S. is trying to be competitive with China, um, an important way to do that is to invest in infrastructure, because clearly uh, China's infrastructure is more robust, it's newer, it's in better condition, and that's one way we can compete. So there are a variety of reasons uh, for supporting infrastructure, and I think we could see a deal in 2019. So if somebody wanted to get ahead of that and make investments, where would they, where would they go right now? Well, I think you need to be selective, but many material stocks would be poised to benefit from an infrastructure spending bill. Now, we need to know exactly what would be spent on in the infrastructure bill, because keep in mind, it could be a telecom-heavy infrastructure spending bill. But my guess is that because we have so much in the way of traditional infrastructure, that needs repair or replacement, that that's likely where we would see the greatest benefit. Uh, So, for example, cement companies, I mean, the most basic of materials would really benefit from um, a traditional infrastructure spending bill. Then why do we see, for example, industrial metals such as copper continue to make new lows? Well, copper is a unique phenomenon, and I know that it is uh, widely viewed as a great indicator for economic growth. What we've seen is demand in China has been strong for copper, but in fact, the traders have impacted where copper prices have gone. So I don't look at copper as any kind of indication anymore of demand in general, because there are other forces at work there. 
It's a great question. I just think that that um, there are better gauges of demand, and of course, we won't even see demand really increase until we get some kind of infrastructure spending bill. If there really is going to be some kind of infrastructure spending plan, what does that mean for the U.S. deficit, and frankly, uh, whether or not people should own longer-term U.S. Treasuries? Well, it means that, all else being equal, the deficit is going to continue to grow. This is not a new concept, though. Um, we're already seeing the deficit increase. And I, and I think for Republicans, it will be the same question they asked themselves when they came to support the tax reform bill, which was, if we get enough economic growth, do we believe that that will ultimately make up in tax revenues what we may lose in terms of budget well, spending. Well, hold on a second. I mean, that's been debunked at this point. It's not that, I mean, maybe it sort of took the edge off some of the increase in the deficit, but for all intents and purposes, almost nobody is saying that it's going to completely pay itself, uh, pay for itself at this point and neutralize over the longer term. So I guess I'm just trying to figure out at what point does that mean much higher borrowing costs for the U.S.? Or do you think that what we've seen over the past few months is that there is sufficient demand uh, domestically in the United States to suck up and soak up some of the uh, sort of higher treasury bond auction sizes? It's a huge question. I don't know if we're going to see sufficient demand thus far. We've seen it. But quite frankly, we're flooding the market with treasuries because it's not just issuance uh, as a result of deficit spending, but we also have balance sheet normalization going on, and that's accelerating every quarter. Um, so that is a, a very significant question that I think will be answered over time. But um, from the perspective of whether or not we will see legislators supporting this, members of Congress supporting this, uh, I think they may fall back on that argument that they need to stimulate growth and they will see it come back in tax revenue. Tell us a little bit about technology because there seems to be, from both the president and the Democrats, an idea about greater regulation and greater taxation of technology companies. Well, that's clearly been a theme that we've heard from both the Democrats as well as the president. And so the question is, will the Senate stand in its way? And uh, while I think the Senate would stand in the way of the president and House Democrats uh, who want to control drug pricing, I don't believe they will be as much of an obstacle in terms of greater regulation of technology as well as greater taxation of technology. And quite frankly, when you're running larger deficits, you're always looking for great sources um, of taxation and tech seems front and center on on that list. Uh, Christina, I'd love to get your opinion on the route that we saw in U.S. equities in October. Do you think that it sufficiently took the froth out of the market to be a buying opportunity, or do you think that it was a sign that there's more to come? Yes and no. So we certainly saw some of the froth taken out of the market. Do I believe all the froth has come out of the market? No. Um, all we need to do is go back to November 9th of 2016, when this uh, extraordinary rally began. Uh, at that time, I worried that um, while many of the administration's agenda items are pro-growth, not all of them are. And in fact, two really um, run counter to growth. Um, and I, I mean specifically protectionism and very strict immigration policies. And so the market was reacting as though it was an entirely pro-growth agenda. And um, quite frankly, the kind of give up we saw in February, and we made such a quick recovery, the kind of give up we saw in October to me doesn't take all that froth out of the market. Just quickly, give you about 20 seconds. Federal minimum wage increase, do you see that coming? 
I think that Senate Republicans would stand in the way of a minimum wage increase. Um, that's my view. Uh, I think it's much more likely that we get greater tech regulation and taxation. I think that they would stand where they would on drug pricing, which is uh, we don't want to see an increase in minimum wage. I could be wrong, though, um, and certainly I think so much of this will be dependent on the polls because legislators are going to care what people are thinking. That's right, especially heading into 2020. Christina Hooper, thank you so much for being with us here uh, at Commonwealth's uh, Conference here in Austin, Texas. Christina Hooper is Chief Global Market Strategist at Invesco, helping to oversee nearly a trillion dollars based in New York, but, you know, we're all here to enjoy the weather or the music or the barbecue. In Austin, Texas. And we're going to be here tomorrow, too. I can't wait. We're going to go get some barbecue. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with my co-host and colleague, Pim Fox. Bloomberg Politics, Policy, Power, and Law, up next. We are broadcasting live from the Commonwealth Financial Network's annual National Conference of Advisors in the Marriott Hotel in Austin, Texas. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Joining us now from our Interactive Brokers studio is Larry Liebert, our National Security Editor. Larry, you're normally based in Washington, D.C., where there were a lot of tearful goodbyes for former Attorney General Jeff Sessions yesterday. Can you tell us what the change at the top of the Department of Justice will mean for Robert Mueller's investigation? Well, I can't entirely because it depends on which course uh, his uh, acting successor, uh, Matthew Whitaker, takes. Uh, Whitaker has been openly critical as a commentator uh, previously uh, of Mueller perhaps going too far. Uh, and it suggested constraining this investigation. Uh, but does he mean uh, he would fire Mueller, which he could, could have the power to do, or does he mean he will quietly, behind the scenes, uh, try to limit his avenues of investigation? And that's a real possibility. And then the question is, will the rest of us know it, either through leaks or Mueller quitting, uh, or will it remain a, a very secret uh, course? Well, Larry, uh, I'm just looking at a CNN report that says that Robert Mueller is actually finishing up the final report that he has been working on. If that is true, uh, what could Matt Whitaker do as the acting AG to uh, alter that at this point? I mean, in other words, is it too far along? Well, the, uh, Bloomberg has reported uh, that he is close, uh, Mueller is, to uh, some key findings, whether it's the final, final report, uh, I'm not sure. But we've already said he's close to some key findings. One of the things uh, that his new boss, uh, Whitaker, can decide is what happens with those findings. He has the power to decide whether they're made public, uh, sent to congressional committees where they're sure to leak, are, are uh, kept private. Uh, there's no rules beyond, uh, beyond his oversight. So uh, when we hear about uh, Mueller's report being uh, issued, I always try to change that, uh, that wording in our stories to say uh, his uh, findings are being completed. Uh, uh, they may not be issued in the public sense, and uh, that's one of the powers that Whitaker may have. Larry Liebert, how long can Matthew Whitaker remain as the acting attorney general? 
Well, there's a period of months, uh, but uh, that can be uh, extended if the president has trouble uh, with uh, whoever he nominates uh, to be uh, the permanent attorney general. He says he's going to make that nomination. It clearly won't be acted on until uh, uh, the new uh, Congress uh, uh, takes uh, its seat in, in January. If anything, uh, approval of a new attorney general is more likely since the the uh, Republicans gained a couple, at least a couple of seats in the Senate. Uh, yeah. But if, say, one nominee fails, uh, as I understand it, there could be extensions uh, while a new one is uh, proposed. So uh, it's going to be at least a matter of some months. Larry, I'm struggling to understand what check there is or is not by the House, which has flipped to, uh, to Democratic, or uh, by the existing Democrats or people who are opposed to crimping Mueller's investigation. I mean, is there any way that Matt Whitaker could be sort of forced to comply with uh, certain parameters enforced by Congress? Well, there's a number of things. They gain the power of investigation and oversight that the Republicans have had before, and that means they can issue subpoenas. Is they can demand testimony, they can demand, as they're already doing while not uh, having the dominant power, uh, the preservation of all documents so they can pursue this. Uh, the ultimate power, of course, would be the power of impeachment. And uh, while there are grassroots Democrats uh, already demanding that, Democratic well, leaders, hold, wait, wait, wait. they um, won't go wait, there. Larry, yeah. hold on one second, though. Sure. I mean, before jumping to that level, <laughs> right, I mean, I'm just wondering with respect to uh, sort of oversight of Matt Whitaker. Is there any real way to do that in the near term or no? Well, what I was saying is I, I was saying Democrats won't go there to impeachment. They are uh, going uh, to demand testimony, presumably including by him. Uh, they're demanding documents. They can issue subpoenas. They can't do any of that except by pleading until January. Uh, so if he moves quickly, if Mueller is uh, uh, in his last uh, uh, stages of preparing his reports, uh, it may all be moot by then. So there's only so much they can do until they uh, take over, and then uh, it depends on uh, how severe a, a constitutional crisis they uh, they believe has uh, taken place. Uh, just quickly, uh, Larry, you mentioned the evidence that uh, Mr. Mueller has assembled in order to prepare his report. What happens to that actual evidence? Well, uh, what, again, uh, the findings that he issues, as, we, as I mentioned, there's a question whether they become public. But so much of what Mueller has done has already played out in indictments and in court proceedings. He's made a lot of referrals to U.S. attorneys' offices, and they can pursue that evidence whether he's there or not. And so, uh, in a way, there's a lot that Mueller has done right. that would be impossible to undo. Larry Liebert, thank you so much for being with us. Larry Liebert, National Security Editor for Bloomberg News, talking about the situation in Washington, D.C. as it unfolds with respect to the independent investigation into Russia collusion and interference in elections. We are broadcasting live from the Commonwealth Financial Network's annual National Conference of Advisors from the Marriott in Austin, Texas. An unusually chilly day here, actually, Pim. I was sort of surprised. I was expecting uh, Texas to be warm, and it is instead 50 degrees and somewhat wet. Joining us now, Virgil Kale, president and owner of Spring Ridge Financial Group uh, from Pennsylvania, but joining us here... Virgil, I want to start with this idea that, you know, there's sort of an institutional memory of 2008 and a collective fear that's sort of still pervasive in the markets. What is the biggest concern right now of the clients who you work with? I think clients understand that it has been a nice recovery from 2008. I still think that they are 
subconsciously worried about uh, something terribly going wrong in the markets or the financial system and seeing their their values drop substantially, as I remember in 2008 in the first two weeks, right? So people still worry about that. And I think my memories of 2008, I, I compared it to uh, being like an ER doctor and all your patients are in the ER at the same time and you have to save them from, from making the wrong decision. Um, but as far as, um, you know, I you basically have to go through with clients, okay, this is what caused it. Is it likely to happen again? Is it? Or, um, can we ever be sure? Can we ever be sure? I, I'm not worried about our financial system in the U.S. Perhaps I might be worried about a financial system issue in another country. Um, but we Pim, can, it rhymes with Lina. <laughs> I'll let you do the poetry, but I, I want to ask Virgil, if you don't mind. Um, pre, in a previous life, you were a certified public accountant. Yeah, you were I'm a still, CPA. I, okay, you yeah. still have the designation. <laughs> yes. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what did you learn from that experience that you have been able to apply in the role that you have at Spring Ridge? Mm -hmm. Because a CPA... Uh, first of all, it's a legal designation. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you have a level of responsibility that many people may not recognize. Well, I do think that having a CPA background definitely, uh, I would say, influences the way I look at the markets and the way I look at um, valuations, even though we've been told that, you know, studying the PE ratios isn't exactly the best way to decide whether the market's overheating or not because they go to one extreme to another. But... Um, I think when you have, because I was an auditor when I was in public accounting and I had to do balance sheets and income statements and I kind of know what goes into it and cash flow statements and all that stuff matters. So when we talk about the markets and, you know, whether the S&P and indexing is the right thing to do, I tend to think more on a, from a fundamental standpoint. So that does influence my way of looking at the markets. And I don't know if I wasn't a CPA first, if I would be that strong on that. Okay. In other words, it's really important to look at the cash flows and not just invest in a basket of companies and, and hope for the best. Is that is that what you're saying? I would say that the cash flow statement is is the statement that doesn't lie, right? Yeah. <laughs> but but, but here's, here's, here's the challenge to that, is that that is true. And yet what also doesn't lie is diversification. And right. if you have a couple of bad apples, in general, you'll have enough winners that you'll get more, uh, you'll get more more of an upside than potentially downside in terms of outperforming or just performing with the rest of the market with an index fund. I'm just wondering from you, I mean, is there any proof that you've sort of looked to to show your clients why active is preferable to passive? Because that seems to be the argument here. Well, yeah. And, and, and I would say most of my allocation in when I build a portfolio is active. But you now there is a time and place for passive. If you really feel like the entire market has, you know, gotten significantly oversold and you just want your clients to participate in the entire market upswing, you know, or a sector that oversold, I could see being passive in certain circumstances. But on the other hand, you know, I guess we should be, no one loves what happened in October, but by the same token, we should be maybe thankful that it happened because it kind of, uh, the fluff of the market, you know, I feel like has dissipated and now we can't really say that we're stretched in valuations and, and I feel like that's as healthy. It's healthy. To that point, um, 
if volatility is going to pick up, and it should pick up, and I believe it will pick up for the next couple years after a very low volatile 2017 and a very low volatile decade, actually, I feel active managers can um, identify the inefficiencies that are out there. When the market's going straight up and there's no volatility, it's harder for active managers to outperform. That's why all of the data is saying, you know, active managers can't outperform. But most of the time that's focused on the large cap US market and that's not a fully diversified portfolio. So it's kind of, uh, you know, there's just, there's no simple way to say uh, active versus passive. You have to look at it with every sliver of, of the asset class pie and, and make a judgment call on whether broad exposure or a manager that has proven themselves, that's highly rated, uh, you know, strong on their lipper average or their Morningstar rating or your knowledge of, of the team that's in place with that fund or the ETF. You know, I, I feel like there is a, a time and place for everything. And I'm looking forward to active management actually having better results as volatility picks up and as we head into maybe uh, coming from peak growth and peak earnings growth to uh, more disappointments in 2019 and 2020 and the economy maybe slowing down a little bit eventually. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's the way I look at it. I want to thank you very much for sharing uh, your information with us and your story. Uh, Virgil Kale is the president and the owner of Spring Ridge Financial Group, helping to manage about $700 million worth of assets. Much appreciated. And uh, thank you for being here with us at the Commonwealth Financial Network's National Conference 2018. Over 2,000 attendees. And we'll be carrying more information from the conference This is Bloomberg. I'm Pim Fox, along with Lisa Abramowitz. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg P&L Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.